Hello, I'm Christopher Greenwood. I'm one of the judges at the International Court of Justice. And before I became a judge in 2009, I was Professor of International Law at the London School of Economics. The subject I want to talk about today is the right of self-defence in international law. Now, former president of the International Court, Sir Humphrey Waldock, once said that there are few topics more important in international law than understanding the extent of the right of self-defence. Self-defence is fundamental in any legal system, but it's particularly important in international law, where historically the central institutions have been weaker than they have been in any national legal system. Now today, discussion of the right of self-defence usually begins with Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, which expressly preserves the inherent right of self-defence. But in fact, the notion of self-defence in international law goes back much further than the United Nations Charter. The modern law of self-defence is generally thought of as beginning with a dispute called the Caroline Incident in the late 1830s. Now, at that time, Canada was part of the British Empire. The United States had become independent from the United Kingdom only some 50 years earlier. So relations between the two countries were, to say the little, a bit tense. And there had been an uprising in part of Lower Canada, which had been unsuccessful, but some of the insurgents had fled to the American side of the Great Lakes. And from the American side, they were mounting a series of expeditions across the lakes into Canadian territory, attacking British government officials and armed forces there. And they used as their base a steamer called the Caroline, which plied up and down the Great Lakes, but at the relevant time was moored on the American side. In the middle of the night, a group of Canadian forces, British soldiers in effect in those days, sneaked across the lakes, attacked the Caroline, overpowered the crew, cut her from her moorings, and sent her to oblivion over Niagara Falls. Two of the crew of the Caroline died in the attack. Now that was the subject of a, an exchange of letters between the British and American governments. The British government maintained that what they had done was lawful self-defence. The United States government argued that it was an illegal incursion into US territory. I should say, nobody at any stage suggested the US government was responsible for what the people on the Caroline had been doing. Those who were attacking targets in Canada were not in any way supported or sponsored by the US government. But the US Army was very small in those days, and they didn't have the resources to prevent these attacks from taking place. Now the whole thing would probably have blown over had it not been for the fact that a Lieutenant McLeod from one of the Canadian militia forces, visiting New York State some while after the Caroline attack, started to tell stories about how he and his friends had saved Canada, in his words, by attacking the Caroline. This angered the people he was talking to, and he was arrested and charged with murder. At this point, the correspondence between the two governments became a great deal more intense. The British government argued that what had happened was self-defence, and MacLeod could not be put on trial. The US government questioned whether this concept of self-defence applied to what had happened at the Caroline but they were prepared to go along with the broad outlines of what the British were saying. The Secretary of State of the day, Daniel Webster, wrote to his British counterpart in these terms. 
He said it was acceptable if there was, and I quote, a necessity of self-defence, instant, overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation. But he insisted, and again I quote, the act justified by the necessity of self-defence must be limited by that necessity and kept clearly within it. Now, the United States was prepared to release McLeod, but the New York courts refused to release him, and he had to stand trial in the state court in New York for murder. We'll come back to what happened to him later. The critical point for international law, though, was that Webster's definition of self-defense became accepted thereafter as the standard treatment of the subject, the classic definition of the right of self-defense. And it's even quoted more than a hundred years later by the International Military Tribunal in the Nuremberg Trials. Now, although it was important in the way international law developed, it was perhaps less important at the time than it subsequently became. Because when Webster made that statement, international law still allowed states to go to war as a way of resolving their disputes. They didn't have to establish a just case for going to war. That only came about later, and it's as that prohibition on the general use of force developed that the right of self-defense became so important. Now that general prohibition on the use of force is worth a, a lecture in its own right. For the moment, all we need to do is to notice three main developments. The first is the Covenant of the League of Nations in 1919, followed nearly ten years later by the Kellogg-Briand Pact, or the Pact for the Renunciation of War, they lay down the first treaty steps prohibiting the general use of force. Then the second step, they're not quite in chronological sequence, is the Nuremberg verdict in 1947, which convicted a number of the German leaders for crimes against the peace, the crime of waging aggressive war. And the third step, taken just before the Nuremberg conviction, but nevertheless very much based on the theories that went into Nuremberg, was the adoption of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the United Nations Charter. Now that's in very broad terms. It says that all members, that's all members of the United Nations, in practice all states, all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state, or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. Now, that's given rise to a great deal of debate, but the important point for us to notice is that it's a general prohibition on the use of force. Recourse to force by one state against another is in principle unlawful under Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter. Now, of course, that prohibition was never intended to be without exceptions. There's an important exception, again worth a lecture in its own right, in Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter, which confers powers on the Security Council to take action to maintain or restore international peace and security. And that action can include the use of force, either directly by troops under the Security Council's command or indirectly by the Security Council authorising the use of force by an individual state or a coalition of states. But there's also an exception of self-defence. 
Now, interestingly, when the Charter was being drafted, the draftsmen assumed that they didn't need a provision on self-defence. It was taken for granted that force use in self-defence would lie outside the prohibition in Article 2, Paragraph 4. But at the San Francisco Conference, a number of states were not prepared to leave things at that. They wanted express recognition in the Charter of the right to use force in self-defence, mainly because they were parties to a collective self-defence agreement, where each state agreed to come to the aid of any of the other parties to the treaty if they were attacked. And so they insisted on an express provision in the Charter on self-defence. And that was what led to the incorporation into the Charter of Article 51. And Article 51 is worth looking at in its entirety. The first sentence says that nothing in the present Charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defence if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. And then the provision goes on. Measures taken by members in the exercise of this right of self-defence shall be immediately reported to the Security Council and shall not in any way affect the authority and responsibility of the Security Council under the present Charter to take at any time such action as it deems necessary in order to maintain or restore international peace and security. Now we'll come back to different parts of that definition in a moment. The key thing just now is that you can see that Article 51 sets out the central elements of the right of self-defence today. First of all, it's an inherent right. Article 51, in other words, is not creating a right of self-defence. It's recognising that that right already exists and then it's adding some conditions to it. Secondly, the right to use force and self-defence is available only in response to an armed attack. It's not available in response, for example, to economic pressure or some other transgression falling short of an armed attack. Thirdly, self-defence can be individual or collective. So there's the recognition of the mutual defence agreements that those states at San Francisco were so keen to have. And lastly, it applies only until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. In other words, rather like in domestic law, your right to defend yourself applies only until the police arrive and take over. The idea in Article 51 is that once the Security Council took over, the individual right of self-defence would lapse. Now what I want to do is to look at each of these key elements in turn. That the right is a right under customary international law, we needn't spend any longer on. That's, I think, now clearly established. But the requirement that there has to be an armed attack has proved to be enormously difficult, and that's something we need to spend a bit of time on. The first point to realise is that armed attack is not defined in the Charter, either in Article 51 or anywhere else. And it's not the same term that is used in Article 2, Paragraph 4. Article 2, Paragraph 4 prohibits the threat or use of force. Article 51 makes the right of self-defence depend upon the existence of an armed attack. 
Now, the term armed attack is narrower than threat of force, that's obvious. But is it also narrower than the use of force? Now, that was a matter that the International Court of Justice considered in the 1980s in two cases involving Nicaragua, one between Nicaragua and the United States and one between Nicaragua and Honduras. Now, that case involved allegations that Nicaragua had provided support for groups of rebels operating in the territory of its neighbours, that that support involved an armed attack by Nicaragua on those neighbouring states, and that the United States had then come to the assistance of those countries by way of collective self-defence. There's a bit of a twist to it. For jurisdictional reasons, the court was not able to apply the provisions of the UN Charter, but it held that the customary right of self-defence, recognised by Article 51, still existed, and that it could apply that. And in later cases it made clear that at least in respect of the definition of armed attack, the customary law and the Charter law are identical in content. Now what the court said in the Nicaragua cases is that for a use of force to amount to an armed attack, it needn't come from the regular armed forces of a state. It was possible that rebel groups, insurgents, terrorists if you prefer, that received a sufficient degree of support and direction and control from a state, could carry out an armed attack. But critically, the court went on to say, only if the use of force involved reached a sufficient scale so that it was more than just a mere frontier incident and rose to the level of an armed attack. Now the court there is saying that the concept of armed attack is narrower than use of force. You can have a use of force, you can have an illegal use of force, which doesn't necessarily um, add up to an armed attack for the purposes of the right of self-defense. And that's something that hadn't really been discussed much before the Nicaragua judgments in the 1980s. It receives a certain amount of support from the French text of the Charter, because where the English text uses armed attack, the French text uses agression armée, literally translated into English as armed aggression. And there was a school of thought amongst commentators which was picked up in the judgments that says that the concept of agression armée in Article 51 is the same as the concept of aggression in the prohibitions in Article 39 of the United Nations Charter. I shouldn't really call them prohibitions. Article 39 provides for the powers of the Security Council to take action in response to a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression. And from there, the court went to the UN General Assembly resolution, which contains a definition of aggression. And it built on that in determining what constituted an armed attack for the purposes of the right of self-defense. Now, I have to say, this isn't without its problems. The first difficulty is that the court didn't spell out how much violence there had to be or what the criteria were for determining whether something went above the level of a mere frontier incident and reached the scale of an armed attack. It merely said there was a test, rather than saying very much about what it consisted of. 
The reference to aggressio arme is perhaps difficult as well, because if you look at the practice of the UN under Article 39 of the Charter, it has clearly treated threat to the peace, breach of the peace, and aggression as three different steps, each of which is more serious than the one before it, with aggression as the most serious of the three categories. And if you look at something that happened just a few years after the Nicaragua judgments, that is to say the Security Council's reaction when Iraq invaded Kuwait in the summer of 1990, in Resolution 660 and 661, the court recognized that that invasion was a breach, sorry, the, court, the Security Council recognized that that invasion was a breach of the peace. But it did not adopt a draft resolution that originally stipulated that the invasion was aggression. That term, one of the Security Council members suggested, should be kept for the most serious cases. Yet nobody ever questioned that the invasion of Kuwait was an armed attack. It plainly was, and plainly Kuwait had a right of self-defense in response to it. The Security Council expressly recognized that in the preamble to Resolution 661 in August 1990. So there are some serious practical problems. There's also another difficulty. Supposing that you have a series of small-scale incidents involving low-level use of force on each occasion, directed by one state against another. Do you treat this as a number of separate, discrete incidents, none of which adds up to the level of an armed attack? Or do you look at them cumulatively and say, well, there are a series of acts and we have to assess whether they're an armed attack by looking at them together. Now, that's been a subject that has divided writers on this ever since our discussion of the right of self-defense under Article 51 began. Interestingly, in the oil platforms case between the United States and Iran in the um, International Court of Justice, the court decided, the court suggested at any rate, that it was necessary to look at a series of incidents as a single and cohesive whole, though in that particular case it didn't find that the series of actions in question amounted to an armed attack by Iran against the United States. One further problem with the Nicaragua approach is what happens if a state is the victim of an illegal use of force, but one which falls short of being an armed attack? How is it entitled to respond to that? Well, the court expressly left open, without deciding, the possibility that a state could lawfully respond to a use of force like that by taking countermeasures which could involve the use of force themselves, thus suggesting that there was something that looked a bit like self-defense, but wasn't self-defense proper because it wasn't taken in response to an armed attack. So there are these difficulties with the Nicaragua standard, but nevertheless, in its later cases on the use of force, particularly the oil platforms case that I've just mentioned, the International Court of Justice stuck with the approach that it had taken in Nicaragua. That's one aspect of armed attack. Another issue that's been controversial is, from whom must that attack uh, emanate? Now, obviously, if one state carries out an armed attack on another, 
that triggers the application of the right of self-defence under Article 51. That's never been controversial. But can an armed attack come not from a state, but from private parties, a terrorist movement, for example, a group of insurgents? Now, in the Nicaragua case, the court recognised that that could happen, but it only dealt with the case where the act of the insurgents was an act that was attributable to a state. So, for example, if one state so completely controlled a group of irregular combatants uh, operating against another state, that it was responsible in international law for the actions of that group. What about the case where a group carries out a serious incident involving large-scale loss of life, and it's not attributable to any state? Now, of course, in 1945, when the Charter was drafted, nobody had that case in mind. But they very much had it in mind after the events of the 11th of September 2001, the attacks on the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, uh, that were carried out in the United States that day. Now, some writers have maintained that the International Court of Justice in the Nicaragua case was taking a clear stand that an armed attack for the purposes of Article 51 could only come from a state. Unless a state was responsible for the act, it wasn't an armed attack. And there's certainly a passage in the Nicaragua case that would support that theory, although it's not central to the decision that's taken. There are also some passages in the judgment in the case between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Uganda, and the advisory opinion of the court on the Israeli wall, uh, which point in the same direction. But again, in neither case are those passages central to the court's reasoning. So it's not perhaps the case that the court has already decided that issue. Moreover, there are a number of factors that point in the other direction. There's nothing in the text of Article 51 that suggests that the armed attack has to come from a state. And of course, if you go back to customary international law, and remember it's a customary international law right, an inherent right, that is protected by Article 51, preserved by Article 51. If you go back to the customary law and go back to the Caroline, the Caroline is precisely an example of a use of force across an international border, which was not attributable to a state. The United States was not responsible for the attack that had occurred, and the United Kingdom and Canada never suggested that it was. Moreover, if you look at the reaction to the 9-11 uh, incident, the Security Council adopted two resolutions in the aftermath of that. Resolution 1368, and a few days later, Resolution 1371. And they spoke in terms of the right of self-defense of the United States. And yet, it wasn't re being suggested at the time that there was any clear evidence of state involvement in the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. Obviously, what happened on 9-11 reaches the level of violence required for an armed attack. After all, roughly 3,000 people died. Approximately the same number as were killed in the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor uh, in 1941. But let's assume for the moment that that attack came from Al-Qaeda, an independent private group, and that no state was internationally responsible for it. There was clearly a move in the Security Council to treat that 
as an armed attack for the purposes of self-defence. So I think this is one of those areas where it's not clear what the answer is. Perhaps the critical question is, are we asking ourselves the right question here? Are we approaching this in the right way in saying, is this terrorist action to be characterised as an armed attack for the purposes of 51? Or should we rather be saying, well, even if it is an armed attack for the purposes of Article 51, will it justify the use of force against the terrorists in question on the territory of another state, where that other state is not shown to have been directly involved? Now, that's an altogether more difficult question. But again, interestingly, the predominant state practice in relation to the invasion of Afghanistan, which followed on the 9-11 attacks, seems to point in the direction of saying the answer can be yes, at least in certain circumstances. So that's another level of difficulty which I think I have to leave you with. And then a third question about armed attack. We've looked at who must it come from. Who does it have to be directed against? Now there's no difficulty where an armed attack is directed against the territory of a state. The use of force by one state and perhaps, as we've seen, by a group, not a state, against the territory of another state, is plainly an armed attack on that other state. Likewise, an attack against the organs of a state outside its territory, for example, against units of its armed forces stationed abroad, one of its embassies, um, warships on the high seas, that has always been treated as an armed attack on the state. It's more difficult, however, if the target of the attack is a private citizen or a private body of some kind. What about an attack on a merchant ship flying a state's flag, but privately owned? Is that an attack on the state? Some commentators have suggested that it is. Some have suggested otherwise. During the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, a number of foreign navies uh, sent warships to the Gulf to protect merchant shipping flying their flag in that area, clearly on the assumption that they could exercise a right of self-defense if their merchant ships were attacked. And in the oil platforms case, which dealt with that period, although the judgment wasn't given until some time later, the International Court of Justice seems to have treated the idea of an attack upon a merchant ship as being an armed attack, although it didn't find that an armed attack had actually taken place on the facts that were put before it. So maybe with merchant ships, the predominant view is that they can be the target of an armed attack. But what about a state's citizens abroad? Can violence deliberately targeted against a group of people because they are nationals of a particular state, can that be treated as an armed attack upon the state itself? To the best of my knowledge, no court has ever ruled on that. There are suggestions in the literature pointing in both directions. For myself, I've always thought that there is at least a case to be made that because a state is defined as territory, government and population, an attack upon the elements of the population of the state even where they're outside its territory, is potentially capable of being an armed attack upon that state if it reaches the necessary level of gravity. Of course, the response to that attack will be limited by other factors, particularly the requirement that Webster insisted on, 
that self-defense had, had to be confined to action that was necessary and proportionate. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now let's turn to a particular difficulty that has been a favourite of the uh, literature and a favourite, I have to say, of examiners in international law ever since 1945. Article 51 of the Charter says, if an armed attack occurs. Does that mean that a state has to wait until it has been attacked before it can resort to force and self-defence? Or is the right to resort to force one which can be used in anticipation of an attack which is expected within a short time frame? Now that has long been the subject of controversy. It's interesting that it was one of the matters raised in the Caroline dispute. The British government took advice from the Attorney General at the time and his advice was, his and the other law officers, the grounds on which we consider the conduct of the British authorities to have been justified is that it was absolutely necessary as a measure of precaution for the future and not as a measure of retaliation for the past. Now that's very much echoed shortly afterwards in the Webster formula. And Webster, of course, would not have known what the British law officers had said. And the British law officers added what had been done previously is only important as affording irresistible evidence of what would occur afterwards. And that's perhaps playing to the cumulative theory discussed by the International Court of Justice in the oil platforms case. Now, as I say, there's been a long debate between writers about that. For example, two of the professors to whom I owe a great deal, people who taught me when I was a student, Sir Derek Bowett, Professor of International Law at Cambridge, maintained strenuously that the right of self-defense applied where an armed attack was imminent. You didn't actually have to wait until the attack began. Professor Sir Ian Brownlee from the University of Oxford was equally strenuous in maintaining the opposite. The International Court of Justice has never ruled on this point. In the Nicaragua case, the court made clear that it wasn't expected to consider anticipatory self-defense because the debate was entirely about whether an armed attack had happened or not. So it didn't deal with this matter, nor did it deal with it in oil platforms or any of its other decisions on self-defense. Moreover, even if the right of self-defense does include a right to take action against an imminent armed attack, does it or should it go even further than that? In a document called the National Security Strategy, published by the United States in the early 2000s, there was a suggestion that the right of self-defense could not be confined even to imminent armed attacks. It had to be capable of being used preemptively against a threat which had not yet become imminent. Now that was not a theory that attracted very much support internationally, whereas the notion that anticipatory self-defense could be applied against an imminent armed attack did receive considerable support, although it also attracted a great deal of opposition. Let's look, for example, at what happened in 2004 to 2005. In 2004, a high-level panel commissioned by the UN Secretary General produced a report entitled Our More Secure World, Our Shared Responsibility. And that report said, a threatened state, according to long-established international law, can take military action as long as the threatened attack is imminent. No other means would deflect it, and the action is proportionate. 
The Secretary-General picked up that theme in his report in Larger Freedom, which followed on from the high-level panel. Imminent threats, he said, are fully covered by Article 51, which safeguards the inherent right of sovereign states to defend themselves against armed attack. Lawyers have long recognised that this covers an imminent attack, as well as one that has already happened. But, he went on to say, it didn't cover a broader right of preemption. Where threats are not imminent, the report goes on, but latent, the Charter gives full authority to the Security Council to use military force, including preventively, to preserve international peace and security. In other words, the Security Council can act preemptively, but individual states cannot do so, or at least cannot use force in a preemptive way. But when those reports were debated in the UN General Assembly, a number of states opposed even the idea of self-defence in response to an imminent armed attack. And there's no mention of this particular debate in the summit outcome from 2005. So again, we have to treat this as a matter which has not yet been finally settled. Then Article 51 of the Charter goes on to say that the right of self-defence exists only until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. Now that's what I described as the policeman analogy at the beginning of this lecture. But what constitutes taking measures necessary to maintain international peace and security? At what point does the right of self-defence go into suspense? Until 1990, nobody bothered very much about that because Security Council action in this category was so unusual. But since 1990, the Security Council has employed its powers to use and authorise the use of force much more extensively. Now, at what point does the right to use force and self-defence lapse because the Security Council has taken action? One view is that as soon as the Security Council does anything at all, even adopting a resolution merely calling on the states to stop fighting, that is sufficient for the right of self-defence to go into abeyance. But that seems implausible. If an aggressor attacks a victim, the Security Council calls for a ceasefire, and the aggressor continues with the invasion, it would seem contrary to common sense as well as common humanity to deny the victim of aggression the right to fight back in self-defence. And in practice, states have not interpreted this part of Article 51 in that way, neither has the Security Council. But suppose the Council adopts some measures, for example the imposition of economic sanctions, but doesn't go further and actually provide an army to fight the conflict. Again, if the sanctions don't bring an immediate stop to the fighting, it's difficult to see why that should deprive the victim of the aggression of their right to self-defence. So perhaps the better reading of this part of Article 51 is that it only comes into play when the Security Council takes over from the defending state. Until it does that, until it takes the action that actually succeeds in restoring international peace and security, or makes it clear that it's negativing the right of self-defence, then the right of self-defence will continue to apply. Now those are express requirements of Article 51, but there's also an important requirement that isn't actually written into Article 51, but which everybody agrees is there, and that is that the degree of force used must not exceed what is necessary and proportionate 
It's a point that Webster was very insistent upon in his letter about the Caroline incident. The International Court of Justice in the Nuclear Weapons Advisory Opinion in 1996 picked up on this and said, necessity and proportionality are inherent parts of the right of self-defense. They're an inherent limitation. Even under Article 51, it had earlier said the same about the customary right of self-defense when it was talking about that right in the Nicaragua case. So the concepts of necessity and proportionality as limits are very well established. They're often treated as though the two words describe the same concept. But in my view, that's not quite right. They're two rather different but closely related ideas. Necessity is a principle that the use of force must actually be necessary, it must be needed to achieve the goal you're entitled to achieve in self-defense, which may be defeating an attack, it may be recovering territory which the attacker has occupied in the course of an invasion. Unless the use of force is necessary for this purpose, it won't come within the right of self-defense. Proportionality is rather different. Proportionality is a limitation that requires that the degree of force used must not be disproportionate to the goal that you're seeking to achieve. In each case, this is something, a concept which looks forward. It looks to the future. It's not something to be applied in a backward or mechanical way. In other words, proportionality, for example, is not assessed on the basis of are you using a larger number of troops or a greater degree of force than was used by the aggressor in the initial attack? Because you can easily think of a situation where one state attacks another by surprise, is able to acquire what it wants, for example, to occupy an area of territory with very little use of force because there was nobody there to defend it. The right of self-defense might well apply to allow the invaded state to recapture that occupied territory. But if it does so, it will have to employ a much greater degree of force than was initially used against it, because by now the aggressor has flooded the area with large numbers of its own troops. So it's important not to use the concepts of necessity and proportionality in a mechanical, head-counting way. And it's important also to remember the point the British law officers made in the Caroline dispute. You've got to look forward. You've got to use a degree of force which is proportionate to the goal you're allowed to achieve, not a degree of force which is proportionate in a retaliatory fashion to what has happened beforehand. Now that limitation of necessity and proportionality can have an important bearing on what sort of tactics a defending state applies and what sort of weapons it uses. That was a question that the International Court of Justice considered when it gave its advisory opinion on nuclear weapons in 1996. Some of those who argued that nuclear weapons could never lawfully be used argued that any use of nuclear weapons, even in response to a prior use of nuclear weapons, but even more so if they were used in response to a merely conventional attack, would never be proportionate. The Security Council, sorry, the International Court of Justice recognized that the use of nuclear weapons had to be brought within the concept of proportionality and necessity if it was to be lawful. But they refused to exclude the possibility that that could happen. Now, the precise contours of that advisory opinion are again a subject for a lecture in their own right. 
but suffice it to say, although the court maintained that the use of any weapon in order to be lawful had to fit within the concepts of necessity and proportionality and self-defense, it didn't accept the submission that some weapons were inherently so destructive that their use could never be a necessary or proportionate act of self-defense. Now, Article 51 of the Charter speaks about individual or collective self-defense. Individual self-defense is easy enough to understand. But what do we mean exactly by collective self-defense? Where you have, for example, a group of states, and they go to the assistance of one of their number, or even without an existing alliance of some kind, states send troops to use force on behalf of another state. Now that was discussed at some length by the International Court of Justice in the first of the Nicaragua cases, Nicaragua and the United States. And the court there maintained that for the right of collective self-defense to apply, three conditions had to be met. The first is that there must be at least one state which has been the victim of an armed attack and which therefore has a right of individual self-defense. In other words, the right of collective self-defense does not come into play unless there is also, for at least one country, a right of individual self-defense. Interestingly, they didn't accept a suggestion that the right of collective self-defense could only apply if all of the states using force had in some respect been affected by an armed attack. And so in the Kuwait conflict in 1990, a few years later, most of the states which sent armed forces to the assistance of Kuwait could not in any sense have been regarded as victims of the armed attack by Iraq against Kuwait. The second requirement is that the state which has been the victim of an armed attack has to have declared itself to be the victim. It has to have made clear publicly that it has suffered an armed attack. And thirdly, that state has to request the assistance of outsiders. In other words, the right of collective self-defense is a right to go to the assistance of a state that has been or is being attacked if that state asks you to do so. It's not a right to intervene without a request of any kind from the original victim state. Now, that has largely been a straightforward matter. It's quite striking, for example, that when Kuwait was invaded in 1990, the Kuwaiti government, on having to leave the territory of Kuwait very quickly, sent letters to a large number of states expressly requesting military assistance in language which closely echoed the judgment of the International Court of Justice in its Nicaragua judgment in 1986. One other point that's worth uh, bearing in mind about the text of Article 51 is that it contains this requirement in the second sentence that measures taken in the, right, the exercise of the right of self-defense must be reported to the Security Council. Now that's a, a procedural requirement. It's the only part of Article 51 that wasn't uh, taken from the existing customary international law. It couldn't have been. There, has, there had been no Security Council until the Charter was adopted. So it was an innovation in 1945. It's nevertheless legally binding on any state which is a member of the United Nations. It's probably the case that failing to report action in self-defense will not prevent that action from being brought within the concept of self-defense if the other requirements are met. But it has an enormously important evidentiary element. It's very difficult for a state to argue convincingly 
that the action it's taken has been action in self-defence if it hasn't taken the trouble of reporting that action to the Security Council. And it's noticeable that since the Nicaragua judgment in particular, states have tended to report their actions in self-defence in very clear and precise terms to the Security Council. Now, in conclusion, let me just say a couple of things about self-defence. Sir Humphrey Waldock said that the right of self-defence and its limits were one of the most important topics in international law today. I think he was quite right to say that. But as we've seen, they're not always easy limits to establish. There's some difficulty about the requirement of a threshold laid down by the International Court of Justice in the Nicaragua case. How do you decide, for example, whether the use of force has reached the level necessary to amount to an armed attack? What happens about uses of force that fall below that threshold? Is a state entitled to use force by way of some right of countermeasures in response to them? We've seen that there's difficulty about the whole question of whether an armed attack can emanate from a non-state actor, such as a terrorist group. We've seen that there's an element of controversy about whether an attack on a state's citizens abroad can amount to an armed attack. We've seen that there are some difficulties about the concept of collective self-defence. Nevertheless, I don't want you to get the impression that this subject is so difficult that all one can do is to wring one's hands and walk away. It's a subject, first of all, that's too important to be abandoned like that. And secondly, most of the time, the core of the right of self-defence is clear enough. Again, one goes back at the end to the Caroline dispute. The criteria that Webster laid down there are still, I think, some use in helping to understand what Article 51 of the Charter and the modern case law amounts to. Lieutenant MacLeod little knew what he'd done, little knew what he'd started when he bragged in a bar in upstate New York about having taken part in the destruction of the Caroline. The irony is, when he stood trial for murder, he was acquitted. And he was acquitted because he hadn't actually been there when the Caroline was destroyed. He'd made up his own part in it to make him sound good. It's a strange way of starting one of the most important debates in international law today.